I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. Glad to have you with us today and in this hour. In case you uh, are just tuning in, today is Nelson Mandela Day. And we just had a spirited conversation in our first hour today about the life and legacy of one Nelson Mandela. Uh, And uh, we celebrate Mr. Mandela Madiba on today. In this hour, though, have you ever wondered about the unseen forces that shape our political landscape, the individuals who actually create our politicians and craft the campaigns that influence voter behavior and determine the outcome of elections. As the presidential campaign season begins in earnest, joined in this hour uh, by sociologist and professor Dr. Daniel Larson, author of Producing Politics, Inside the Exclusive Campaign World, where the privileged few shape politics for all of us, Pleased to welcome Dr. Larson to this program. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. It's uh, good to be on. Thank you. It's good to have you on. Thank you for your time. Let me start with a, a question that might seem a bit strange, but it, I think it's a decent starting point, and we will um, we'll, we'll jump from there. Um, when you think about the fact that there really are just a handful of people, um, which is the point of your text, and we'll get into that, just a handful of people who really sort of create these politicians and, and craft their campaigns uh, and 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 basically uh, just uh, <laughs> find ways to influence the rest of us to vote the ways they want us to vote. Uh, it's just again, it's just a small group of people. Um, what say you about uh, how that? Uh, let me frame. I won't say this the right way. Uh, frame that reality in the context of this alleged democracy that we live in. I think you take my point. It's just a few people. Um, but um, it, we, we live in what we, what we think is, is a democracy. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's not a democracy. There's many far less democratic countries in, in, the, in the world, of course, but sure. I do think the fact that so much of our politics is run through, as you said, such a small set of people really constrains the amount of democracy that we have. And one of the, one of the main things I'm trying to get across in the book, which I think you picked up on, is that so, um, is that the way that our, our politics are run, the way that our campaigns are run, means that it just doesn't connect for a lot of regular people. And so a lot of regular people feel shut out, they feel disconnected, they feel like it doesn't affect them, um, and there's sort of a self-perpetuating cycle, right? If you feel like politics isn't for you, isn't about you, isn't, isn't speaking to you, then chances are you're not going to participate, and then people don't have much incentive, people inside politics, to try to cater to your needs. Um, so there's sort of a you know, a, a nasty cycle, a, a vicious cycle uh, operating, I think. Yep. And to your point, uh, which which uh, which warrants some interrogating. So we'll do that right about now. Um, yeah. why, why do you think um, that politics these days uh, does not connect for a lot of regular people? I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I try to say and I, I, I show in the book is part is that at least part of it, it's about who's running campaigns, right? Mm-hmm. It's disproportionately white. It's disp- even among Democrats. It's disproportionately people who went to elite colleges, which gives you at least a reasonable, you know, makes it very likely that they're from rich families, although not everyone at an elite college is from a rich family, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of them are. Most of the people I interviewed um, came up with a fair amount of privilege, came up, uh, you know, in in isolation from sort of the struggles of, of regular people. And I think that shapes 
the kinds of politics that we get. So I think that's that's at least part of it. Um, I think, uh, you know, from other research I'm doing right now, I've done a bunch of interviews with poor and working class people across Pennsylvania. The other thing I'm really seeing is just, you know, people have a sense that not much changes, not enough changes. And so um, that also makes it hard to get people engaged. Mm-hmm. Um I'm not naive in asking this because I've worked on a few campaigns myself um, right. over the course of my career. But but what is it that draws these few white privileged elites to work on campaigns in the first place? What what what's what's the end game for most of these people? I think you know the, the what draws them and what's the end game are maybe two slightly different questions. Okay. I think for a lot of people, you know, what draws them in is is they get excited about politics. Um, as kids, kind of the way many of us got excited about sports or about fashion or about, uh, you know, any any number of other sort of forms of essentially entertainment in our culture, right? And of course, politics is really different than sports or any number of other things because it directly affects people's lives. It, you know, it affects what kind, you know, how much benefits you're getting if you're on food stamps. It affects uh, who has access to, uh, you know, what kinds of books are available in public libraries. It affects laws that affect trans and LGBT folks. It affects all of our lives. Um, but I think for a lot of people in politics, it was you know, when they were kids, it was the thing they got geeky and excited about. Um, and that, of course, is shaped by the kinds of, you know, the kinds of families that they're in where they have access to that. Um, in terms of the end game, though, I think the, you know, for a lot of them, how they see their work and what they're, what they're doing is really about, um, you know, fighting with the other side. And it's really about uh, getting access to, um, I almost titled the book, The Room Where It Happens, right? Getting access to being in those halls of power, being the person making the decision, both about what happens in the campaign and also what might happen um, if you become an, uh, an advisor or a staff member to an elected official. Yeah. Um, when we come forward, uh, and we're just getting started in this hour, uh, talking with Dr. Daniel Lawrence about his new book, producing politics inside the exclusive campaign world where the privileged few shape politics for all of us. The flip side of these white uh, privileged elite who run these campaigns are black political operatives. Uh, And uh, we're going to have a conversation here in a moment about why there are so few black political operatives who run these campaigns and why they can't be a part of the few that shape politics for all of us. Uh, Most of you uh, know uh, that Donna Brazile, uh, sister, we uh, love and respect, uh, ran Al Gore's campaign. Um, but the number of black people who've ever run major campaigns in this country for major candidates uh, for president is very, very, very small, like Donna. <laughs> and so when we come forward, um, uh, that's something that, that we're going uh, to unpack and a great deal more uh, that exists inside this book, Producing Politics, written by Daniel Lorison. You're listening to right now on KBLA Talk 15. Daniel Larson, we were talking earlier about these white elite uh, uh, who run these campaigns as we are working our way into your book, Producing Politics, inside the exclusive campaign world where the privileged few shape politics for all of us. Uh, and it begs an obvious question. I mentioned Donna Brazil, uh, personal friend, so uh, just uh, put that out there. But there are so few Donna Brazils who get a chance to run major campaigns for presidential candidates. Why is that? Um, yeah, and that's a, such an important observation, and I think it's both important to, to you know to note that there are Donna Brazil, there is Donna Brazil, and there's a few others who've had that sort of role, um, not at quite that high a level. 
Um, I think there's there's probably three main reasons why you don't see nearly enough black and other people of color in um, high level campaigns, even on on the Democratic side, where the majority of voters, voters of color are. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And one is uh, is about how you get into campaign work. Generally speaking, in order to get a job, you know, a high-level job on a campaign, you have to have started when you were 20 or 22, uh, often working for free or for very little money, often moving, you know, between states, sometimes multiple times in the same year, um, and so it's essentially the kind of uh, unpaid internship that excludes anybody who doesn't come from, you know, a fair amount of financial stability, doesn't have parents that can help them out, doesn't have anybody that they um, need to support back home. So, of course, you know, it's, you know, being from a poor working class family, um, not obviously not all black people are from poor working class families or vice versa, but um, for people who are, that's one thing that keeps them out. Um, another thing that keeps people out um Black people and other people of color, I think, is that um, the way people advance in campaigns, you might think, you know, a campaign, either there's a win or a loss. So you can just look and see, you know, the people on the winning campaign must have done a good job. The people on the losing campaign must have done a bad job. Um, but for anybody who follows politics closely, you probably have a sense that that's, that's not really how it works. A lot of things affect what who wins or loses besides uh, how good the campaign was. And it's actually really hard to make a good sort of honest, fair assessment of how effective people's uh, work is in campaigns. And so what you get instead is a culture where people are assessed by essentially how well they fit in, by how much their views align with the views of the people around them or the people ahead of them. Um, You see this in other fields as well. Um, But it means that people who don't fit in, you know, who are different in terms of race, different in terms of class, um, with the majority that's already there, those people are less likely to get ahead. Um, So I think that's another another piece of it. Isn't that a pretty damning indictment of the Democratic Party? Um, I'm going to get to women in just a second, so just put a pin in that. No, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Yeah, yeah. Let, me stare, let me stare at people of color just for a second here, black people and other people yeah, of color. Yeah, yeah. The fact that uh, the Democratic Party would not be what it is uh, without African-American voters, everybody knows, yeah. uh, this ain't rocket science, that the most loyal constituency for years, decades now, yeah. in the Democratic yeah. Party are African-Americans. And I've said many times, that one party ignores us, the Republican Party, the other party, the Democratic Party, takes us for granted. Um, But uh, here you come now with this book that really goes behind the scenes of the campaign world and exposes who these privileged few are that really shape, again, the Mm -hmm. politics for all of us. But that's a pretty pretty ugly indictment of the Democratic Party, um, that it is the party that sees sees itself as the big tent party, the big umbrella. Pick your metaphor, and yet they still let white, elites run campaigns, run the party, et cetera, et cetera. I, I grant you there's, a, there's an African-American right now who's head of the DNC. Um, that, that, that aside, we're talking about campaigns, uh, the folk who actually yeah. make this stuff happen every single day. But that is not a good look for the Democratic Party, and yet that reality endures. What say you about that? Yeah, and I think I think you've you've summed it up really well. And I think you know there are there have been I think some moves within the Democratic Party to, to think about this a little bit. In 2020, most of the primary campaigns uh, were 
uh, you know, put out statements about what percentage of their staff were people of color. Um, you know, there's some there's some conversations happening about the fact that this is an issue, but it's it's not nearly as much as I think it ought to be, and it's not um, making as much yeah. change as, as I would like to see nearly as, as quickly as I think it ought to be. But, um, so I think, yeah. So I absolutely agree with you. No, it's one of those. I mean, cut you off. It's one of those things where when you when you if if you if you're at the if you're at the end and you see things aren't working, it makes sense to go back to the beginning, right? My grandmother, Big Mama, used to always say, "You can't start out wrong and end up right." So if <laughs> if, if if we're if we're raising questions about why these campaigns and these candidates oftentimes don't connect to everyday people, connect to everyday voters, as you put it, regular people. Well, if regular people mm-hmm. are people of color, if regular people mm-hmm. are women, if regular people are et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and these aren't the folks running the campaigns, these aren't the folks shaping the messages, these aren't the folk we see out front, these aren't the folk making the money, these aren't the folk making decisions about how the spending is going to be uh, uh, how the spending is going to be approached when it comes to uh, mm-hmm. media buys, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if if all that's true, then it ain't rocket science. <laughs> it's it's not a conundrum to figure out why this stuff isn't connecting in the end because they didn't start out right in the beginning. I digress on that point. Let me pivot to this issue of women. We've been talking about black folk and people of color. Um, but uh, take me inside your research and tell me how women are regarded or not. Uh, running campaigns. I'm thinking now of my friend Susan Estridge. As I recall, I think I'm right about this, Susan was, I think, the first woman to ever run a major presidential campaign. She ran Mike Dukakis's campaign, you may recall. So um, mm-hmm. Susan Estridge um, made history then, but um, you know, history is, it, there's not a long list of folk, historically, women who've run these major presidential campaigns. How do I read that, Daniel Larson? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the the so if I look at the statistics, the, the Democratic Party um, is almost even uh, with Democratic voters in terms of the percentage of, of staff who've worked in major national elections who are women. Uh, but if you look at the top, you're absolutely right. It's still, um, you know, less a little bit less so recently. Hillary Clinton had one of the more uh, racially and gender diverse uh, inner circles that we've seen in quite a while, actually. Um, but if you um, but if you look at the top, it's still very disproportionately men. And I think that goes, you know, to an aspect of the culture that is, is especially difficult for women, but it's really difficult for anybody who wants to have, a, you know, any kind of balanced or reasonable life, wants to see their kids, et cetera, um, which is just that the, you know, the expectation is that during campaign seasons, you work, you know, I had one of my interviewees tell me, you know, she got a job at a, um, on a primary in New Hampshire and she got there and she was told we're going to work every day from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. That quickly turned into 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. and then 6 a.m. a.m. to 10 p.m. and then basically, you know, around the clock. Um, you know, I start I start the book with a story about getting involved at just the very lowest level of the Obama campaign in California, and even there, the culture was such that it just felt basically impossible to leave the office. If I left the office, I was going to miss something, mm-hmm. um, and I ended up, you know, with a with a some real serious tension with my with my partner. We had a, a baby who turned one during that election, mm-hmm. um, and I just wasn't, you know, I wasn't I wasn't home. I wasn't attentive. I wasn't getting enough sleep. Um, and it was all through this sort of culture of like, well, we have to do everything we possibly can before Election Day. But it's not really clear to me that 
Um, but that, I think that culture keeps a lot of people out. I don't think it's a healthy way to live. Um, and I think it, I'm not convinced that it's, it's necessary. That's the way that things have to be run. Yeah. Um, this is not a question, uh, or, uh, about campaigns, uh, and producing politics per se, which is the subject of your text, but it's connected. Uh, and I think you'll appreciate the question. At least I hope you will. Um, so we, we know there's been great debate and the debate isn't completely settled yet. Um, but we know there's great debate inside the Democratic Party about the uh, the uh, the camp the uh, the primary calendar, uh, and mm-hmm. which which states are going to go first. Uh, and so Joe Biden has made it clear he wants South Carolina to go first. There are other persons, of course, who are in line with that. And the reason for that is that these states that have tended to go first historically, Iowa and New Hampshire, frankly, don't look like America. Uh, we are the most multicultural, multiracial, multi-ethnic nation we've ever been. That ain't what Iowa looks like. That ain't what New Hampshire looks mm-hmm. like. And so in many states, in many respects, these states are not just small states. And I understand the value of retail politics, being able to shake hands and meet people in small um, states like Iowa, New Hampshire. I get that. But Iowa, New Hampshire look nothing like what the country actually looks like. Uh, and so there's been a, a great deal of pressure on the Democratic side to push South Carolina to the top of the uh, of the schedule, uh, at the top of the calendar as the first primary. Uh, I raise that because I want to get your take uh, on the following. Again, it's not about how we change campaigns. It's not about how we um, reshape, uh, you know, the, the few uh, who decide uh, these politics for all the rest of us, but it, it is a critical, I think, component, uh, to making the process a bit more democratic. That's my read. What's your read? Um, I, I would agree with that entirely. I think, you know, a huge amount of time gets spent by, uh, by campaign staff and by candidates in those first few primary states, because those tend to really set the, um, you know, the, the, the tone, the, the, uh, momentum for who ends up getting the nomination. It's not 100% a guarantee, but if you, you know, if you generally speaking, if you lose both Iowa and New Hampshire, most of the time people aren't going to be the nominee. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think there's two things that would be good about moving to having South Carolina or other more, uh, much more uh, racially diverse states in the, you know, in the early in the primary calendar. And one is, as you said, just reflecting the the country better. Um, I think it also would mean that people would have to learn how to campaign in places that aren't uh, predominantly white and predominantly small and rural towns. Um, and I think that would be a real benefit to the, you know, to the Democratic Party and to our politics overall. Yep. Um, looking at my clock here, I've got news and traffic and sports in about two and a half minutes. Let me let me get this frame out and we'll get started perhaps uh, and then continue when we when we come forward uh, on the other side. But I'm, I'm, I was thinking as you were talking a moment ago. <laughs> about a comedian who uh, tells a pretty funny story. And I'm not a comedian, so don't expect to, uh, me to deliver this <laughs> deliver this as a comedian would on stage. But this comedian basically tells the joke, um, a female comedian basically tells the joke that when you meet women, you're not really meeting the woman, you're meeting the woman's representative. <laughs> mm. And, and, and the, the joke, of course, is you got the eyelashes, you got you got the weave, you've got the implants, you've got this, you've got the other, you got the makeup, you got all that. You're really on the first couple of dates not meeting her. You're meeting her representative. Uh, I couldn't tell that joke, but a female comedian can tell that joke. It's funny and we all get the point. Uh, I raise that uh, because I'm wondering uh, these days, uh, given what you've researched and written about in this text, whether or not we're actually meeting these people uh, on the campaign trail as they are, 
or whether or not mm-hmm. the way the game is crafted, the way the game is shaped, we're really meeting their representative. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's something that's been a concern about our our politics for for quite a while, as the you know as the size of the electorate has expanded, as um, politics has had to become, um, or at least as people who run it have believed, it's had to become more sort of retail, more uh, more broadcast, more you know you have to sort of present us the same image everywhere. There's been a lot of energy that goes into crafting candidate images, crafting messages, et cetera. Um, and I think you're right that that, I, I don't know if the analogy to the, to the joke is exactly it, but I think you're, you're right that, uh, politic, you don't see exactly who a politician is. I'm not convinced that's the, you know, that's the largest issue. I think what, what concerns me almost more is, is what campaigns think they need to do in that, in crafting that image and how that might lose a lot of people. Mm. All right. So hold that thought. When we come forward, talk about, um, what concerns you more deeply, um, what campaigns have to do to craft that image, uh, those images. Uh, that's what we'll pick up when we uh, come forward in our conversation with Dr. Daniel Larson. His book is called Producing Politics Inside the Exclusive Campaign World, Where the Privileged Few Shape Politics for All of Us. I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Daniel Lawson is an associate professor of sociology at Swarthmore College. His new book is called Producing Politics, Inside the Exclusive Campaign World, Where the Privileged Few Shape Politics for All of Us. Uh, before news, traffic, and sports, you were teeing up, uh, Professor Lawson, uh, this notion of what really does bother you uh, about the way campaigns feel they have to go about crafting uh, their messages. Unpack that for me. Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, you you made the comparison to sort of is is the politician a real person or are you just getting their representative? But I think the issue is that the, the representatives, the campaign staff, the advisors are also, you know, they're who's crafting politicians' messages when they're on campaigns. They're also largely who's advising them once they get elected. And so it matters in some ways to me less, you know, who Joe Biden is deep in his core. Um, and it matters to me a lot more who he's listening to when he makes decisions about um, what bills he's going to, you know, he's going to try to get passed or what messages he's going to try to get across when he when he runs for reelection again. Um, and so that, you know, the fact that most of the people who are doing politics for their whole careers are, as we were talking about earlier, you know, generally speaking from relatively well-off families, generally speaking, um, more likely to be white than not, um, generally speaking, more likely to be men, also likely to be people who, you know, are willing to give up their whole lives for politics. Um, that means they're really cut off from the concerns of poor and working class people, the concerns of people of color are often and that means we don't get politics that can reach those people as well as I think they ought to. Mm. To the point you're raising now, um, I have issues with this phrase uh, from time to time and I don't have time to unpack that right now. Uh, but mm. given, given what you just said, um, give me your sense of the way these campaigns now more than ever play what many call identity politics. Mm. Yeah, I have, I have issues with that phrase as well. Yeah. Um, but it you know, I mean, I think partly because it, it implies that some people's identities are, you know, disposable or unimportant or et cetera, and not sort of the core of their civil rights, right? Um, but I think, you know, right now we're seeing, I'm a transgender man, right now we're seeing the Republicans use trans people as a, basically a, a you know, a, 
what's the word, a scary monster, essentially, um, to, to scare people into voting for them and scare people about what the Democrats uh, might do. Um, and I don't think we're seeing, you know, as effective as I'd like re- response to that. And I think it's again, um, you know, and there's, there's all, you know, we saw that around, um, we see it around immigrants. It, it changes from year to year. Who's the boogeyman? That's the word I was looking for earlier, not mm. scary monster, but you know, it changes from year to year, which group gets to be the boogeyman. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's often around gender and sexuality and it's often around race as well. Um, and, and I think if you, you know, I, I was really struck, I'll just say, uh, I'll say it sort of the other way. I was really struck. I was doing an interview with somebody um, in Pennsylvania during the 2022 election, um, and they saw right through a lot of this. They, you know, there was this whole attempt to cast John Fetterman as um, anti-black because of an incident where he chased somebody. And I don't know what actually happened with that incident, but somebody I was talking to was just, was you know, was was really able to say clearly that's just people trying to play politics, right? That's just trying to dig up something that makes somebody look bad. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's what so much of our politics ends up being is just casting one group or another as the monster or as the boogeyman. And that turns a lot of people off of politics. I want to see if I can connect two things here and get your take on uh, the following. Um, I want to see if I can weave the notion of polling, which all these campaigns rely on more than they should, I think. But 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 mm-hmm. but polling that oftentimes is incorrect. Uh, we all thought Hillary was going to win that election against Donald Trump. Obviously, she did not. Mm-hmm. So the polls were way off that night. Um, mm-hmm. So I want to connect this notion of polling to the notion of um, preconceived notions about voters that many most all of these campaigns have. So uh, talk to me about the ways in which you think these campaigns now more than ever rely on all kind of polling uh, data uh, and, 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 and how that data allows them then to have these sort of preconceived notions about who voters are, what voters think and how voters are going to cast their votes. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, you know, I'm a social scientist. I use uh, surveys in my research. I think they can get at a lot of stuff for you, but there's a, there's two big limitations, I think, especially maybe three, especially the way campaigns use them, right? One is a poll can only answer questions that you ask, right? So if you're only thinking in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of the times people are only thinking in terms of who's going to be that fulcrum demographic, who's going to be that little teeny slice of the electorate who, who's going to be movable, um, you, can, you can ask questions that might get at that, but it can't tell you, um, you know, a, a poll can't tell you how you actually move those people. It can't tell you if you're looking under the wrong corners. Um, it can't tell you uh, how to think about things. Uh, I think more broadly, the issue is that, um, a, you know, a poll misses, a poll is not really a way of understanding where people are at in their lives, right? Um, and what a lot of our politics is missing, if you ask me at least, is is any way for communication to go from the ground up, right? From regular people into campaigns. Um, and I think part of that is just, you know, we don't have very much emphasis on, you know, on, on talking to people and just doing the, the field part of campaigns. Um, and when we do have field. Um, there's stories from uh, so many recent losses where the um, people on the ground in the, you know, running the field operations were saying, I'm hearing from regular voters. They're saying 
Um, you know, I got this story from somebody who was on Bernie Sanders' campaign uh, in 2020, and they were saying, everybody just wants to know who can beat Trump. And the Bernie Sanders leadership was like, that's not our that's not our frame. That's not what we're doing. And they lost that opportunity. Whether mm-hmm. you think that's a good thing or a bad thing is another question. Um, very similarly, uh, there were a lot of stories on the Hillary Clinton campaign of people on the ground raising concerns and people in the central office basically saying, we have our data, we have our models, we have our polls. Your observations are not are not going to be helpful to us. Um, and I think they really were wrong about that. Yeah. I asked you a moment ago, and you just, you just responded to my question about preconceived notions, which takes me straightway into mm-hmm. a conversation now um, beyond preconceived notions about the implicit bias, oftentimes of mm-hmm. these white privileged elites who run these campaigns. Talk to me about that part of the story. Sure. Um, I mean, I think the you know. There's a couple things going on. I think one thing is actually that a lot of where people can get, you know, most people in campaigns, despite all these criticisms that I have of them, they genuinely want to do a good job, right? Mm -hmm. They want their candidates to win. They're not, um, you know, there's a critique that I don't think is particularly right, that they're mostly just trying to make money or they're not, you know, they don't really care about the issues. Most people I talk to on both sides do really care about the issues and do want their side to win. Um, but they, it's really hard to get good feedback um, when you're running a campaign about what is actually reaching people. Uh, what you get feedback about is how it's how the other side is reacting. And so you get a lot of, um, I think, campaign strategies and tactics that are at least implicitly as much about sort of zinging the other side or getting a rise out of them or et cetera, as they are about reaching reaching people where they're at. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think also a lot of a lot of people who work in politics, like they know that their level of engagement and interest in politics is weird and unusual, um, but they don't ha- necessarily have great insight, many of them, into how to connect politics for regular people. And I think a lot of what they end up what they end up doing is thinking, I just have to, we just have to repeat the same message over and over and over and over, drill it into people's heads, hit them over the head with it, some of them said, and that will get through to people. Um, so I think that's another, another part of it. And then, of course, um, you know, the thing you're alluding to, the, the, the more direct issue is, you know, a white person from a suburban background probably has a fairly good guess about how to get their Uncle Bob to maybe change change his vote. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're going to have a much less good guess about how to get a Latino 32-year-old single dad in Albuquerque to change his vote, right? Um, or whatever, you know, name any any group that you're trying to win that's not suburban white people, and you see the you see the challenge there. Yep. When we come forward uh, in our conversation with Dr. Daniel Larson, Uh, author of the book Producing Politics, Inside the Exclusive Campaign World Where the Privileged Few Shape Politics for All of Us. Uh, I want to to pursue uh, a line of questioning about the following. One, um, get his take on how he indicts these campaigns on the left and on the right. Uh, What's his indictment of these political campaigns when it comes to creating a political environment uh, that's oftentimes confusing, polarizing, and certainly alienating to many of us voters. What's his indictment of this whole campaign apparatus in that regard, number one? And number two, how am I to read the fact that these days, uh, more than ever, the campaigning never stops? He sort of walked up to this line a moment ago and got chalk on his shoes, but he didn't quite step over it. I want to step over that line and talk about what it means um, that the same people who run the campaigns, then go into the offices with these politicians, and the campaigning essentially never stops. We'll do that when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. 
Dr. Daniel Larson is a professor uh, of sociology at Swarthmore College and author of the book, Producing Politics Inside the Exclusive Campaign World, where the privileged few shape politics for all of us. Continuing now our conversation for the uh, uh, few minutes we have left in this hour. Uh, I said a moment ago, Dr. Larson, that I was going to ask you about the following, as I will right now. Um, your indictment, uh, to the extent you have one, and uh, it... it uh, uh, it appears to me that you do, given the text, of course, uh, an, an indictment of all these campaigns, left, right, center, you tell me, uh, and the role that they play in creating a political environment that is oftentimes confusing, polarizing, and certainly alienating for many of us. And I could spend you know, hours, and I have, in fact, spent hours uh, uh, indicting my profession, the media profession, for the role that we play mm-hmm. in that regard but it seems to me that the role that the media plays is not disconnected from these campaigns because in large measures, you well know, the media takes its cues from these campaigns. Uh, I pass the mic to you. Yeah. And I, I mean, and part of what campaigns are trying to do is, is to influence the media to report on them the way that they want to want to be reported on. So it's sort of another another sort of self-perpetuating cycle that you see there. I think what might be more uh, fruitful, partly because I'm an optimist and partly because I think I've said some of my, you know, my my key critiques before, right? Like the the who makes up these campaigns is disproportionately white people from mm-hmm. those backgrounds, et cetera, um, is to say what I think they could be, right? You could have campaigns where the people right now, the people running field offices, the people whose job it is to actually manage volunteers and talk to voters are the youngest, the least experienced, the least valued, often the least well-paid of all the people in campaigns, right? You could refer, and the people who run uh, communications offices are the best paid and also the most likely to be white um, of all the people in, uh, in campaigns. You could reverse that status hierarchy, right? Right. You could really invest in people whose job it is to connect directly to people where they are, um, to get to know, um, you know, to get to know communities and neighborhoods and make sure they feel connected, not just during a campaign season. You know, I've done a lot of volunteer canvassing. And one thing you hear when you knock on people's doors is, yeah, the Democratic Party sends somebody to knock on my door once every two or four years and I don't hear from them again. Right. Until the next time they want my vote, you could have a year round organizing infrastructure that's, you know, that's dedicated to really helping people see, you know, the infrastructure act that Biden passed was able to, um, you know, contributed this money, which is why your cousin down the street has a job right now. Um, that's that's something we could do, but it's not what we currently do, right? Mm-hmm. So much of, of campaigns is focused on sort of this high-level airwaves battle. Um, and there's actually, you know, when you look at research on campaigns, it's really hard to see how much that makes a difference. But when you look at uh, research on door knocking, on, on talking to people where they are, um, that's the one thing that's been shown over again, over and over again, both to change people's minds on tricky issues and to bring people out to vote who otherwise might not. No. Um, so that's that's what I think campaigns could be. No, the TV ads, I think uh, you're right about, eventually reach a point of diminishing returns when you've seen it so many mm-hmm. times, and there's so many of them. Yeah. And every commercial break, you're getting the same commercials. You just you, you tune it out eventually. It, it becomes, you know, you, you get tone deaf to it um, because, uh, I, then I think it, it, it's overkill at some point. Uh, when we come forward in our remaining moments, there are a couple of things I want to get to, including the money in these campaigns. We talked earlier about, about why and, and how it is. Uh, and what a tragedy it is that the folk who run these campaigns politically, uh, nationally, always tend to be white, uh, privileged elites. Uh, and there's another reason for that, because the money these white, 
privileged elites make is stupid. Um, you look at any, look at any of these campaign expenditures, certainly at the presidential uh, presidential level. These folk make a whole lot of money consulting and running these campaigns, uh, and uh, that ain't money they're trying to give to black folk or brown folk or red or yellow people. Uh, there's another reason again uh, you can consider for why these um, uh, uh, political operatives look the way that they look. We'll talk about that, and finally we'll get. Um, uh, Professor Lawson's take on uh, why and what it means that the campaigning never stops. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Daniel Lawson, you know this well because you researched it. You wrote the book Producing Politics. There's a whole lot of money um, that these campaigns um, uh, share, uh, pay these uh, political operatives. Uh, and to my mind, that's another reason uh, why you don't see these positions filled by people of color oftentimes and filled by women. Um, as a person who owns a media outlet and, and has for some time, uh, I know full well uh, the fight that we have to engage in with campaigns. And I mean, Democratic campaigns who are mm -hmm. uh, who are trying to attract the people that listen to this station. Um, you have to fight with them uh, to get them to to spend some real money advertising on your station but they'll spend money everywhere else. Um, but you have to fight for mm -hmm. it. Uh, and they just expect that black folk are going to line up and vote for them anyway. I digress on that point. But talk to me about the money uh, that these operatives are making in these campaigns. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a field I mean, like journalism and in many ways, like uh, we're seeing the, the actors and, and writers strike in, in uh, film and TV right now, where the people at the very top make an enormous amount of money. Mm -hmm. um, when I first started doing this research, I was in graduate school and I went into um, absolutely some of the, the wealthiest fanciest, most uh, most intimidating homes and offices I'd ever been in at that point, um, doing some of these interviews. Um, but it's also, you know, it's also worth remembering that there's an awful lot of people who uh, who are trying to break in and either who can't because the 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 pay is so low at the very beginning, um, or who um, you know, or or who are more or less just making making regular people salaries as well. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's huge variation, but I agree with you. The you know the top is incredibly well paid, um, too well paid, and there's just I mean there's also just so much money flowing through, and that's one of the reasons I think we could you know they could do other things with that money, right? They mm -hmm. could not spend on the sixth, seventh, eighth Joe Biden ad in the hour of watching TV with my kid that I saw last uh, you know in 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, and focus on on field operations on on paying the people who are just getting into it well enough that they can make it a sustainable career. Yeah, let me close with this then. Um, I said earlier uh, a couple of times that one of the things that troubles me about the way we campaign these days is that the campaigning never stops. It's hard to know where the line is between campaigning and governing, as I see it. How yeah. do you see it? I think that's right, and I, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but um, you know, a huge portion of the people who are advising elected officials are the same people that run their campaigns or that ran their campaigns. There's a um, close to half of people who've ever been in a national level campaign end up with a job in in government or working for an elected official at some point. And so I think you know the mindset that you get in campaigns that it's about sticking it to the other guy, that it's about the reaction that you can get from the other side, that it's about crafting a message that's sort of bland and, and not too honest and fit, you know, could could work a whole bunch of people, uh, a whole bunch of places. And also the message that you're not, um, you know, that the people you focus on are those sort of marginal swing voters rather than the ba your base, the constituency that vote, that does turn out to vote for you every time. I think all of that is 
is you know contributes to a politics that is just not as as representative. You know, as you said at the beginning, are we a democracy? I think we're not as as full of a democracy as we could or ought to be if a lot of these systems work differently. Got ninety seconds to go. What do you hope? Um, you may have just teed it up now with that last comment. But what do you hope the takeaway is um, from all the research you did to produce this book, Producing Politics? I, mean, I would really love to see, especially, I, I think it would be good if it were all of politics, but I care much more, and I think the Democrats have much better politics overall. Um, so I would love to see Democratic campaigns really figuring out how to be more diverse, to bring more people into working in politics. I'd love to see people with real progressive values see, see the Democratic Party as a place that they could make a career, um, and not just the people who are sort of more centrist or mainstream, feeling like it's a good place for them. Um, and I'd love to see campaigns that really try to reach out, not just to the to the swing voters, but to everybody in this country who has a stake in our in our politics. And I think that is especially black people, other people of color, and low income and working class people. Daniel Lawson's work focuses oftentimes on class inequality, social mobility, political political participation and campaigns, as you now know, and race and class inequality in politics. He's a associate professor of sociology at Swarthmore College. His latest book is called Producing Politics Inside the Exclusive Campaign World, Where the Privileged Few Shape Politics for All of Us. Thank you for this conversation, Dr. Lawson. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk.